We're reminded that the Rocky Horror Show began as a successful musical play. The movie, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, was released in 1975 with something other than the fanfare that accompanied film versions of plays like My Fair Lady and The Sound of Music. It was never promoted as a first-run feature, but it did well at midnight showings in New York, Boston, and other large cities and repaid its producer's million-dollar investment 20 times over. Shown every Friday and Saturday night in some 200 theaters ever since, it's been seen by more people each year than the preceding one. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is a far cry, as we can assume, from The Sound of Music or My Fair Lady. It is not uplifting, pleasant, heartwarming, star-studded, or expensively made, but it is a raunchy and jolting film about the coming to Earth of beings from the planet transsexual in the galaxy of Transylvania. A naive young Midwestern couple, Brad and Janet, lost on the way to announce their betrothal to their high school science teacher, Dr. Scott, stop for help at Frank Enferter's castle. This castle is the secret headquarters of the Transylvanians. And much of the movie's humor comes from its parody of the Hollywood musical. It seems that in every theater where the film is shown regularly, ritual chants and other responses from the audience are a normal phenomenon. Participants bring rice to throw during the wedding scenes, toast to throw during the toasting scene, and matches and lighters to light when Brad and Janet see a light in the window of the castle. The last scene, which takes place during a rainstorm, is also often accompanied by showers from the balcony, the demonstration is often anticipated by viewers who pass out sections of newspaper to protect themselves from the rain, a la Brad and Janet. Some moviegoers dress like characters in the film, and many assemble at the film's end to dance the time warp. The participation is, of course, subject to variation. The bulk of Rocky Horror participation is verbal, there is an almost constant dialogue between the audience and the film, similar to that between priest and congregation. These responses do not seem to be called for or precipitated in any particular way by the film. There's no bouncing ball to sing along with. Yet the responses usually do not disrupt the film in any way. The phenomena of the showings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show indicate that the film's audiences are using these showings to express some of their pent-up anxieties and frustrations occasioned by the evolving and unresolved cultural conflicts that continue to this day. All that from the essay, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, More Than a Lip Service, by Mark Siegel, writing in Science Fiction Studies. We'll learn that much of what Siegel observes about the film can be applied to the original stage version, titled simply Rocky Horror, and yet find as well the experience between the two is very different. The Pennsylvania Theater of the Performing Arts in Hazleton invites veterans and newbies to attend their production this weekend and next. Adam Randis, who plays the narrator, and Joshua Plash, who directs the show, stopped in at the WVIA studios to talk with us about this cult classic, Adam Randis. Rocky Horror is, it's a phenomenon, and literally, like, you talk about the idea of a cult movie. It is, in some ways, like, the first cult movie, because the, the people who are fans of Rocky Horror, it, it's, 
the fact that every Saturday night somewhere will be playing Rocky Horror at midnight and there is the there is the expectation of the call and response involved in it and there's and there's some improv there but I mean if you look at it it's I mean it's not that far to say you know talking about it as a cult phenomenon it's it's a mass it's a religious experience almost for these people it's something that they will go to once a week they will have their call and response as if you would have in a in a church service and for them it's that sort of uh, that's the comfort for them that's the place where they feel like they belong and so you have that sort of it, it, it is an experience that they get going to this movie with their friends going to this movie with people who are like them and by like them i mean not like other people and there's there's a sense of camaraderie and community in there that I think is just fascinating that this show in particular engenders because of its outsider status. It always was an underdog and it's and it's bald faced queerness. I mean, it's it's out there for everybody to see. And it's something that then is celebrated because people who did not see themselves in the mainstream or in in media will then see themselves in this. It's a place for the outcasts. Since its inception, when we started to see those midnight shows happening, obviously I wasn't alive for that. <laughs> but after that, steam train started rolling and these people, these outcasts found their place to be. We're all more comfortable with the people that we are like. And, and this is where they find their home as well. And Josh, you mentioned that the phenomenon was born before you were born. Why did you want to do this? I was probably exposed to Rocky Horror at much too young of an age. Uh, <laughs> To be honest, but I don't know. Something in the back of my head, it always resonated with me. Maybe I am the weird one. Maybe I am part of the outcasts. And and I kind of felt at home watching it as well. So the proper time came when I was able to actually put it to fruition and do it. And I wanted to bring what I see as the show to audiences now. And you were excited by his vision, right, Adam? Josh's oh, yeah, vision? absolutely. Yeah. So, so Josh is coming at it from the angle of People who are are used to the film and and used to that that repetition, the, the, everything will be there for them, line wise and and set wise, etc. But at the same time, he, the the ideas that he has for the staging, the ideas that he has for the costumes, and and the entire production team, I think, is just it's neat. It's something that you will see here, and you won't necessarily see in other productions of Rocky Horror. And that's the nice thing about this show too, that directors can put their stamp on it, and they can they can have a little twist. And so that's one of the things that can have four different theaters doing Rocky Horror and an audience member can go to four different shows and get four different experiences. In making this show or in visualizing this show, I wanted people that saw it in the 70s to be able to come see it and say, this is the Rocky Horror I saw, this is the Rocky Horror I remember. But I want people like me, my age, to be able to come see it and say, I understand what the phenomenon is about. We don't want you to spoil or tip your hand so people aren't surprised. But are there general ways you can talk about what you're doing that is true to what Adam was suggesting? In terms of, like Adam said, you're going to see this show and it's going to be the Rocky Horror you know and you love and you'll be able to make those callbacks and it'll seem very familiar to you. But on the other hand, um, especially in things like costumes, I'm taking it in a little bit of a modern twist. Not so much modern as this is what people are wearing in 2020, but I'm almost going for a 90s rock grunge aesthetic with these costume choices. And I think the costume choices that we've made, that 90s grunge style, still feels familiar with the themes and the mood of the story itself. 
Is this theater that you are working in a good one? Are you working with obstacles because of the layout of the theater and the way the audience is positioned? Whenever you whenever you do a show, you have to consider the space that it's in with your design and your scenic design. I think Josh actually did a very good job with that. So he uh, convinced me to be in the show as well, and I can <laughs> I, did. I can give some I can give some things away in terms of this. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler territory, but I'm playing the criminologist slash narrator. So Josh's idea for that, which I think is really neat, is that the criminologist is omnipresent, but not on stage. The criminologist is in his study, which actually we have is almost like a an annex to the stage on his own platform to read the story, as it were, and, and observe it, but and also be that intermediary between the audience and the show, which he is, as originally written, but literally he is in a space in front of the show to make that even more thematically uh, apparent. So it is, it is the criminologist who gets to break the fourth wall more than anybody else. The call and response stuff for the cast, they kind of have to, you know, can you break the cast, is, is the sort of thing that happens with that. But with the narrator, the narrator telling this story to the audience can then also interact with the audience, which I think I'm I'm looking forward to and cannot necessarily prepare for. <laughs> but I'm I'm excited to have that sort of interplay with uh, with the call and response folks in the audience because there are the things that you expect, but then there's always somebody who's going to throw something out there that you haven't heard before, and to be able to play with that, I think, is going to be uh, very fun. Uh, Adam touched on the kind of space that we're operating in, and it doesn't have a lot of height. And, and that's okay because we're going to work around it. And the scenic design kind of plays with that. Some stages, when you go to these theaters, huge, huge ceilings. You're able to work with a lot of fly space. In our space, that is not the case. So in terms of set design, audiences are going to be, I think, pretty surprised with how we operate moving the walls around, flipping, seeing either side of them, and creating entirely new spaces without that height. Do you find that most of your cast members are familiar with the show either having been in it in other productions and or big fans as audience members? Yeah, so I think it's a mix of both uh, of that, actually. There are people in our cast that have done it before, done it a few times before, and some of them are playing the same characters they have when they did it before. But also there's people that are completely new to this. There's people that have never seen this script before and come in it with, with open eyes. And I'll tell you what, coming at this thing blind is a challenge. <laughs> But they're handling it with grace. And I think the people that especially have done it before are bringing awesome new things to the table. When a theater does this piece at this time of year, often midnight shows are planned so that audiences can get the maximum impact. Is that something that you all are going to do too? Yeah, absolutely. Because this show is running two weekends, we're actually doing two midnight shows. Rather than having the usual 3 o'clock p.m. matinee, our shows in this case are going to be Friday and Saturday at 7, and then following the 7 o'clock show on Saturday will be the midnight show. So you have two chances to actually catch a midnight show to to really get the, the Rocky Horror experience. And it's certainly expected that that one will probably be a bit raunchier, and you can probably expect more from the audience as much as you can expect more giving back to the audience at those shows. So we're looking forward to being able to do that. Can people bring things that they know are part of the general apparatus that is involved in the show? So we will actually be selling prop bags at the theater. I, mean, I, I don't want to say that people can't bring in things of their own, but the things to keep in mind, there are kind of rules for, for Rocky Horror and the props. And there are particular rules for seeing it on stage versus seeing it in the movie theater. So no liquids, no food, 
which is often used when going to see the film, those we will not allow to be brought in and they are not in the prop bags either. So to help with cleaning and and for the safety of fellow audience members as well as cast members. But yeah, the, the prop bags will be there. They will be sold at the door. And so for those people who might not know what to do, there'll also be a nice little card in there explaining when to use your various things, when to use your when to use your noisemakers, when to use your bubbles, you know, that when to when to bring the newspaper out, the toilet paper, that sort of thing. So for the uninitiated, there's a there's a guide for them. Tell us, each of you, if you would, just a general sense of what might be different about attending the stage performance as opposed to the movie aside from the fact of what you can throw and what you can't. <laughs> so I think you could come at this just like you would for any other kind of production you would see. We love going to the movies. We love watching Netflix. We love sitting on our couch and, and having that time. But it is a completely different atmosphere to see live theater. And the fact that we could have live theater again, again, kind of post-COVID, still COVID era, is a special thing. And people have been yearning for that. I know I have. I wanted so badly to get back out there and, and to do this again. And I think these audiences want that too. It's more intimate. We can yell at a screen. We can cry at a screen. We could do all, all that. But to actually see a live performer on stage is a completely different feeling. And I think with Rocky Horror as well, people think of the movie first, but it started as a stage production. And it was actually a, a not unsuccessful stage. So unlike the film, which very famously flopped and then found its its midnight calling, the stage production, they they had small venues that were always packed for it. And with the the cult that developed around the film then kind of like an Ouroboros coming back around to the play version, you now have this, you know, there are, there are things that you know are coming, but then you also have people who are going to try to trip up the cast, which you can't have when you're watching the film. When, when you're there watching the play and you're yelling various things at the actors on stage, there's that question of, Oh, will they break? You know, will, will, will this thing slip through and get them? And then the actors have to, have to be mindful of that. And there are times where it certainly makes sense to to acknowledge it. There are times where you have to just, you know, stone face and, and move on. But that sort of interplay you can't get from watching the film. That literally is as Josh said, you know, the the idea of of live theater is that it's it, it's at the very least a, a at least a slightly different experience every show. Every show is its own experience. It's its own moment. And then this is a show that actively demands that those moments be created by just how participatory an audience might be. What is it that a play like this does, not just releasing pent-up energy to get out and yell it and throw things at people or whatever, but what can this particular type of piece say to us at this moment what you said at the outset about being different and the outsiders, that's still obviously speaking to us today as well. But is there anything else that you see? You're a historian. Well, and to, to answer that question in a, in a broad way, but then also getting a bit specific with the idea of, of being outsiders and, and finding a home. And, and I had mentioned the bald-faced queerness of the show. That is something where it, at, at, at one time, you can look at it and say, oh, some of this stuff is really dated and a lot of it's really problematic. But at the same time, through its reputation and through its ability to kind of be a home for people that did not have a home otherwise, it's it's strangely, well, having problematic elements, certainly, and, you know, with, with language, with even the way of talking about, about cross-dressing, about talking about gender. It's, it's using dated terms that were even dated in the 70s because it's, it's calling back to B-pictures of the 1950s and, and exploitation films of the 60s. 
But at the same time, it has spoken to a segment of the population and a segment of, of moviegoers and theatergoers that didn't have anybody speaking to them before. So, you know, you're talking about the, the, the sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. We wouldn't have that sort of phraseology now. But the sort of openness about acknowledging cross-dressing, about acknowledging sexual fluidity was something that you did not see. And this wears it as a badge of honor. And I think it is, um, it's, it's a testament to this production that, you know, we have people of, of multiple races and ethnicities. We, we have people of, of multiple genders and gender identifications who are in this show. And they bring their own life experience and, and their own finding who they are and where they are in the world to what they're doing on stage. And so that makes it at once a very, it's, it's a very modern experience, but it's also a very personal experience for a lot of people in the cast. I mean, I'm very proud that our Frankenfurter is a non-binary and they are, it, it is a part that they always wanted to play. And being able to do that is something that means a lot to them. And therefore it's something that will come across to the audience as well with that connective tissue. Rocky Horror, Richard O'Brien, the man that, that created this masterpiece, it was really his love letter to himself. When he was creating this, he, like Adam said at the time, were very radical, radical ideas, radical thoughts, but it was him on the inside. And he had no shame, no fear in putting it out there for everyone to see. So you see all of these deep dive references to, to things he used to love and see in the past, he would read these pinup magazines and that was his inspiration. He wanted to be that. And he coined that phrase. We see it in that in, in one of the final songs, don't dream it, be it. Beautiful line, beautiful meaning. And if there's one line I hope people take away from this, it is that. Don't dream it, be it. Don't dream it, be the Pennsylvania Theater of the Performing Arts in Hazleton will present the Rocky Horror Show this weekend and next, and we had a visit from Adam Randis, who plays the narrator, the criminologist, and Joshua Plesch, who directs the show, and we can suggest that you see it the weekend of Friday, October 21st, and Sunday, October 30th, and as we heard them explain instead of Sunday matinees on Saturday moving into Sunday they will have a midnight show each weekend for more information on the web ptpashows.org ptpashows.org the Rocky Horror Show to be presented by the Pennsylvania Theater of the Performing Arts and that's this weekend this Friday and Saturday October 21st and 22nd with that midnight show moving from Saturday night into Sunday morning, and that's the same the next weekend. For more information, again, on the web, ptpashows.org. You can see the show at 212 West Broad Street in downtown Hazleton, and again, it's ptpashows.org. Org. 